you, go ahead and open it, to uh, the book, the Old Testament book of Judges. Old Testament book of Judges. And go to chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of, and don't, don't let this turn you off when I say the word history, but you need to understand the context of this chapter. What has taken place before it? Judges, the book of Judges, uh, or the time of the Judges, began in about 1300 B.C., a very, very long time ago, and a very long time before Jesus. To give you a little bit of reference of where it fell in the history of the people of Israel, this happened, the book of Judges, the events of the book of Judges happened after God had delivered his people from Egyptian slavery. It happened after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the part that we call the Exodus. It also happened after the events of the book of Joshua, and that is uh, God's people going into, back into the promised land after 400 years in slavery, after about 400, or 400 years in Egypt, after 40 years of wandering, they go in and they conquer the land and the people of Israel go and begin settling the land. That's, called, that's, that's covered in the book of Joshua. And this falls after that. So a lot, that's very important that you understand the, uh, the, the context in which this is happening. All of these amazing things have happened and they have a, hundreds of years of history of seeing God move in miraculous ways. Something that marked this time the, of the period of the judges was that they had no king, they, they had no emperor. It, it was probably... Uh, in all of human history, since creation forward, it's probably one of the few times in which God, people really look to God, you know, you'll see often, look to God as their ruler. They didn't have a king. They didn't have someone that would live and then their child would take the throne. They didn't have a, an election process where they would choose a, a president or or a prime minister. There wasn't a Congress. They were ruled or directed as God raised them up by persons who were called judges. Now there's something else, and this is really important, just even before we get into the text here, there's something else that marked this time, and that was it had a it, it experienced a cyclical effect. Now that's that's a pretty fancy term, but there was a cyclical if, effect that was happening here or a repeating pattern that the people of Israel would go through every few decades. I'll point it out here in a moment. But there was this cycle where they would, they would do something, and then uh, for the most part, they would do, this would happen, and this would happen, and this would happen. And actually, this cycle that I'm about to detail happened throughout the history of the people of Israel, not just the time, not just the time of the judges. This cycle or this repeating pattern uh, would go something like this. God's people who had been set free would, in ways great or small, usually starting small and becoming great, God's people would reject God and they would embrace, begin to embrace the evil of the society around them. They would sin. They sinned. That was, that was often the, the first part of the cycle. They would sin. Now, I know, let me just pause here in the narrative. The, 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 the uh, sin is a word that a lot of people today, and perhaps even back then, are rather uncomfortable with. Because when you talk about sin, it means that there are things that God says are good and things that are not good, things that will draw you to him, things that will drive you from him. We call those things sin, those things that come between us and God. It, it, it means that there is a moral absolute that goes beyond what we think is right, but what God says is wrong is quite simply termed as a sin. And they had sin then, we have sin now. As God's people continued in this course of sin, God would allow them to become subject to an enemy power. So there was the, followed that following the sin was subjection. Eventually, and sometimes it took years, even decades, 
Eventually, in desperation, God's people would cry out for deliverance and there would be a heart change and we call that repentance. That was the next part, generally, of this cycle. In repentance, then God would raise up a a person, a deliverer, uh, usually a judge, and they were often a warring person. So you see this cycle, there, there, there would be these, these things that, would repeating, that were repeating, and then that person that God raised up would lead the people to drive the enemy out, and there would be deliverance, and then after deliverance, God's people would enjoy peace and freedom for a period of time. So this cycle happened again and again. And in time, it would, it would just roll around. Sometimes it would take a few years. Sometimes it would take many decades. But they kept going in this circle. Sin and subjection. And over a period of time, repentance. A deliverer would be raised up. There would be deliverance, and then they would experience peace once again. This cycle or this, this pattern of behavior was repeated for generations. You can read through it. In fact, later on, you can just go to almost any chapter in the, in the book of Judges, and a lot of chapters later on in the Bible in what we call the major and the minor prophets, and you will see this repeating pattern. Here's the thing. and You, you see that, that pattern there before you, but you, you often what you don't see recorded there is there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering that that is between those words. There was a lot of suffering when, when the people sinned, people were injured. Bad things happened to people in their minds and in their bodies. Following the sin, there was always consequences and And there would be a lot of suffering there, and families would be affected, and marriages would be affected. Parent and child relationships would be damaged. When there was subjection, when they became subject to to some foreign power, then, then people, all they saw was the occupying enemy and the enemy running free and able to do what the enemy does. There's a lot of pain in between all of those leading up to that point of repentance. And even after that, there's still a lot of pain as as they come back to God and and the process of all of that. There's a lot of pain and loss throughout that cycle, through all of those cycles. So this was happening. That's all background. That's that's, That's what's taking place here in Judges chapter 3. And the first part of Judges chapter 3, verse 12 says this, once again, (laughs) starts off, once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's talking about the first thing, that that two o'clock position, uh, sin. It's talking about sin. They rejected God and they embraced ungodly things. They, They rejected God and they begin to embrace ungodly things. Now that's a rather disturbing statement. Just that line, just that one verse is rather disturbing when again, you understand what had taken place up to this time. It's disturbing when you remember how God had delivered his people from Israel. Right, all of that, all of those plagues that happened that loosened the grip of Pharaoh so that finally he said, get out of here. And they not only left Egypt, bondage in Egypt, but they also took a lot of the wealth of Egypt with them. This is the God who delivered them. This is the God who parted the Red Sea so that they could go through on dry ground. This is the God, the same God who who had sustained them with manna every morning for 40 years, who drove flocks of quail through the camp, so all they had to do was take their tennis rackets out and beat them down and fry it up again. This is the God who, 
who had a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night for 40 years directing them and reminding them of the presence of God. This is the God who gave them his law on the mountain. This is the God who had sustained them and protected them. This is the God who had destroyed the, the, the city of Jericho. This is the God who empowered those people to go into the promised land and, and take it for their own. This is the God who had done all of that, who had brought them through all of those difficult times. So it's disturbing when you realize that these people were now turning their way, they're, they're turning their backs upon God. It's disturbing that it, it says they embraced ungodly things. They did evil. And they rejected the one who had delivered them and sustained them. You see, you cannot... You cannot reject God and embrace the ungodly without there being some consequences. Let me say that again. You cannot reject God and embrace ungodly things without there being some consequences. That, that applied not only to then, but it applies to now. If there's a peaceful pond and you take something that that is outside the pond and you throw it into the middle, you know as well as I do that there's going to be a ripple effect that goes all the way to the end of the pond. There's going to be a consequence to doing something like that. You can't reject God then or now. You cannot reject God and embrace ungodly thing and avoid consequences. And this is what was happening. Verse 12 continues. These are some of the consequences. It says, And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Now, there's more to it than that, but, but uh, uh, God said, All right, I'm going to withdraw my hand of protection. There's going to be this enemy army that's going to come in, enemy king and army, who's going to come in, who's going to conquer, who's going to occupy. This is the subjection part. Verse 12. This is part of the terrible consequences, the untold heartache and regret. You think of that. You know, it's not that they just came in, the enemy army came in, and people died defending their homeland. Uh, Families families, uh, suffered over the loss uh, or the injury of loved ones. There are consequences to turning our backs on God. There are consequences of embracing ungodly things. Verse 13 gives more details how, how God allowed this enemy army to attack and then occupy Israel. And it says there in verse 13 that Moab or the kingdom of Moab op, uh, occupied Israel for 18 years. 18 years. That's a very long time. 18 years this enemy force occupied the nation of Israel. That means that there were some people who grew from infancy to adulthood, and they knew nothing but the enemy dominating. They knew nothing but enemy domination. People who were born and then came to adulthood, and as long as they can remember, the enemy, it became their way of life. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to get into, relate this to us a little bit more, but, but I think of how many people there are who are living today and think, this is just the way that it's supposed to be. How many people are growing up in homes and the enemy is occupying that home, but they know nothing else beyond that? There are consequences to rejecting God's plans and embracing ungodly things. There are consequences. Well, verse 15 jump down to that, it tells us that God's people repented. It says, quote, they cried out to the Lord. Now, now remember verse 13 says that they were occupied for 18 years, and it's not until verse 15 it says that they cried out to the Lord. Now, crying out to God is a good thing, but it makes me wonder if they cried out to God when they were first invaded or if it took 18 years of breaking before they finally cried out to him. Think about that. Was it on day one that the enemy came in, began occupying? Did they go, oh, God, we're so sorry, we're broken, and they turned their hearts back to God? 
Or when the enemy came in, did they go, you know, this isn't so bad. Maybe things will be better. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is a, a better life for us. And they didn't realize that the enemy was taking control. But remember, the consequences are there. The suffering was there. So over the course of 18 years, it got worse, and it got worse, and it got worse. And finally, those who had been embracing of the evil got their belly full of it. They got tired of it. They saw, they, they, they understood there are consequences to our actions way back, way back when. And we're living with it now. And, and they recognized that we need to call out on God. And it says they cried out to the Lord. Verse 15 introduces us to a deliverer. It says that God answered his people with this deliverer, and his name was Ehud. Ehud. <laughs> I've heard of Jewish people. I've known of a couple of high-profile persons who are named Ehud. So perhaps if, if, we were, um, if we were comprised of Jewish Christians, that would be a more common name. But I don't remember the last time I ever met an Ehud. Um, I don't. I don't recommend it. If you if you're expecting a child, it just doesn't sound very good. But Ehud's a remarkable man. He's one of those persons in Scripture that I wish I knew more about him. I wish I knew more about Ehud. We're told a couple of interesting little facts about him. It says here that he was left-handed. He was left-handed dominant, which means that most people then, like now, are right-hand dominant. But Ehud was left-handed and. And it also tells us what line he was, what Jewish tribe or line, family line that he was from. Uh, but I'd like to know more about Ehud. Maybe someday when we get to heaven, we'll find out the rest of the story. In fact, I, I believe that we're going to see, we're going to meet Ehud when we get to heaven. Uh, that's going to be cool, right? I'm going to meet Ehud. I want you to do that. When you read scripture, say, someday I'm going to have coffee with that guy or that gal. I, I want to do that. I want to meet them. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, Ehud, I want to know this. And the Bible doesn't tell us, but there's a story behind it. I want to know why Ehud heard God's voice when other people did not. There has to be a reason, right? Because people had, years before, rejected God in a, multiple, a number of ways. They had embraced evil in a number of ways. Uh, over the course of those years, more people just got further and further from God. But somehow, there's more to the story, somehow this man named Ehud uh, honored God, and he heard God's voice, and when he heard God's voice, he obeyed. I, I want to know more to that. I want to know why he was willing to be so used of God in such a difficult time. The end of verse 15 says, the people of Israel sent Ehud with a tribute to the king of Moab. Now, a tribute was essentially extortion. It was, it was protection. It was protection money. Um, it, would, it would not be unlike, you know, some, some kind of gang boss saying, you give us so much money and we won't destroy your business. The king of Moab, he had other places to conquer. As long as, he, uh, as, long as they... Uh, uh, kept giving the money, he would say, well, okay, I won't send in so many troops. I won't come in and, and hurt your people as long as you keep the money coming. It was all about, it was follow the money. It was extortion. I mean, it sounds like something that happens now in, you know, some, some gang area, but this was happening on a national level here. This is what the tribute was. So the Bible tells us that Ehud took this tribute to the king of Moab. Now, Mo, the king of Moab doesn't know really anything about Ehud, and he's just thinking he's the guy bringing the cash. Ehud, we know, carried more than protection money. It says that he also concealed an 18-inch sword strapped to his right thigh underneath his clothing. And after he presented the money, the tribute money, the extortion money to the king, well, let's read it, right? Let's read it. Verse 19, Ehud said this. Imagine the scene. Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king, said, the king must have loved, by the way, the king must have loved a good secret because it says that he, he said to his atten attendants, leave us, and they all left. So it's just Ehud and the king of Moab here. 
Ehud then approached the king while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace, and he said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud, I'm sure with, it says here, with his left hand, he drew the sword from his right thigh and he plunged it into the king's belly. Now hold on, some of you, just keep reading here. Even the handle sank in after the blade and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out and the fat closed in over it. I don't know if this has ever been made into a movie, but if it is, I don't want to see it. Aren't you glad that we have the kids elsewhere right now? I promise you the kids would go, cool, that is really neat. It's gory. It's violent. It's messy. It's graphic. But let me say this. Sometimes deliverance is difficult and it's messy. Deliverance is difficult and it's messy. The Bible goes on to tell us that Ehud made his escape because, remember, the king's dead inside. Nobody knows it yet. They're still outside. Ehud makes his escape. He rejoins his men. And it, the Bible says that together they went on to defeat 10,000 of the enemy soldiers. Look at verse 30. It says this, That day Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. You see, it's come full circle. The cycle has been completed. And I want you to notice, just in that line in verse 30, it says, it says, Moab, at the beginning of the story, Israel was subject in subjection to Moab. But here it says, Moab was made subject to Israel. I like that part of it, because now it's totally turned now, they're the occupied land. And it also says here, more importantly, it says they, that is the people of Israel, had peace for 80 years. They had known so much violence, they had known occupation, they, they had known subjection, but now, now they enjoy, it says, peace for 80 years. That's a very long time. People lived longer back then, a little bit longer, but... Uh, but there were people then that knew only peace for many, many decades. Now, sadly, I wish this weren't the case. I wish I didn't have to say this, but sadly, the cycle would be repeated. It would, it would be repeated. It would begin again. But it says here, for 80 years, generations of God's people lived in peace because God used one man to defeat the enemy. I repeat, Generations of God's people lived in peace because God used one man to defeat the enemy. So I want you to see this cycle that's repeated again and again. The essentials of this cycle, take the main elements of it, the six main elements that you see there before you, the, the six main elements that, that relates to not just that time, but to our society. It relates to our nation. Hear me. Because any nation, any society that was established on biblical principles, as it moves further away from those eternal principles, there will be terrible consequences. Again, any nation, any society that God has used in the past, and especially those established with biblical, godly, eternal principles, as it moves further away from that, there will be terrible consequences. This is why we must pray for our nation. This is why we must resist the incessant drift towards evil within our society. But... But, if we relate this, as maybe you have already, looking at the basics, the essentials of this story in this time, if we relate this only to the larger society, and we fail to apply it on a more personal level, 
I'm telling you, we could lose even more. You see, there's a danger here and elsewhere that when we read about these kinds of things, that we fixate only upon how this applies to the greater society. There's a danger in that. There's a danger in fixating only upon how it relates to another group or an entire people, and we fail to apply it to our own lives. In the New Testament, Jesus warned against, against calling out the log that is in someone else's eye overlooking the splinter that is in our own eye. I'm concerned that when we read things and we make the automatic connection to our society, we fail to look at our own lives and how this cycle that can be and often is and I believe is being lived out in societies today also affects us personally. Now, the fact that you are here today, and I know this may not apply to everyone, but the fact that you're here today or that you're listening in this morning probably means that you have experienced peace with God. At some point in your past, now perhaps not everyone, and we're going to give you the opportunity to have peace with God, <laughs> to live in that most wonderful of places that is going to affect your eternity. But most of you here today, most listening, have experienced peace in God in that at some point in the past, you recognized your need for the Savior, and there is only one, and you surrendered your life to Christ, and Jesus came into your life, and he began to change things. I'm assuming here that most of us today, listening in or present, have experienced peace with God a personal relationship with him. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, he has delivered you from so much. He has set you free. Glory to God. What God did to the nation of Israel in delivering them out of Egyptian bondage, what God did among his people as they went into the promised land and began to occupy it, many of you this morning could give similar maybe not as grand, but similar points of celebration of what Jesus has done in your life in delivering you from things, in sustaining you, in strengthening you, in empowering you, and in using you. Like them, we can, we can do all of that. But sin, those at first small decisions that reject God's plan, those small decisions that embrace the ungodly things of the world around us, those things can happen to us, to people who have been set free, to people who have experienced new life in Jesus Christ. We can allow small points of, of rejection against God's plan. No, I would rather do my own thing. <laughs> I would rather do someone else's things. And it never, never starts out big. It's just small no, I think I'll choose not to honor God. No, I think I'll choose not to follow him in this way. By our actions, maybe not with our words, but by our actions. And we begin to embrace, I've seen it. We begin to embrace the things around us that are ungodly. We're so familiar with them, and the greater society keeps telling us it's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. And they'll say, what's wrong with it? And instead of saying what's right with it or what's godly about it, we go ahead and in small ways we begin to embrace it and we take it to ourselves. Those small, at first small decisions that reject God's plan. Those small decisions that embrace the ungodly things of the world around us. If we fail to call them what they are, if we fail to identify them and say, regardless of what the world around me says, I know that's wrong because God's word says it's wrong. If we fail to call them what they are, if we fail to repent of them, they can take us into subjection to the enemy of our souls. I have lived long enough to observe how even within the span of one or two generations, people who were once passionate for Jesus Christ, who were delivered by him, 
but begin to take on at least very, in the beginning, very, very small things, rejecting God and embracing the evil, within a relatively short time, they come under subjection. I have seen people who once knew Jesus Christ come into absolute bondage with things in their bodies. We are living in a time when really any kind of sexual sin, excuse me, let me rephrase that, almost any kind of sexual behavior is regarded as acceptable. Almost anything. God designed sex, and he designed it between a husband and a wife within marriage. And the operation of that outside of marriage is sin. But we live in a world that says, you know, that's, that's really not essential. In fact, sexual behavior with anyone and increasingly with anything is acceptable. But there's going to be consequences to that rejection of God's plan and the embracing of the ungodliness around us. We live in a society where, where we can take into our bodies where it's said that we can take into our bodies anything and it won't affect us. It won't change us. We can do it. If it's legal, go ahead and do it. But there will be consequences to that rejection of God's plan and the embracing of the greater society, things in the greater society around us. It can become even more less defined. We can take offenses something that someone else has done, and we can take them, and rather than employing God's plan, which is grace, which is forgiveness, we instead embrace the attitude of the world around us, and that is retribution and revenge. And you hurt me, I'll hurt you. That's a rejection of God's plan. It's an embracing of the greater culture. And I'm telling you, it has an effect upon people. There are so many things, attitudes that we take on that, that, that we think it's perfectly fine because everyone else says it, but God's word says, don't do this or you will have consequences. Followers of Jesus Christ can take in these small things and before you know it, it's just, it becomes a way of life. I use the, I've used the example of, uh, uh, and you've heard this before, it's not original with me, I've used it before, but if you've not heard it, it's, it's, a, it's a picture. There's a saying that I think it, it comes from Bedouin culture that how does a camel get inside the tent? He just gets his nose under the side of the tent and because the way that the camel is shaped, he just keeps pushing and keeps pushing and keeps pushing. And what began with the camel's nose, before you know it, the entire camel is inside the tent. And this is what happens in our culture. We just let it go a little bit and before you know it, the whole tent has changed because we've rejected God's plan and we've begun to embrace the things around us. That subjection, before they know it, they're subject to the enemy. And that subjection will affect others around us, and it will affect the generations to come. And the consequences will be horrible. The, cons the consequences will be horrible. There's a saying that, again, not, common, not original with me, but sin will always take you further than you were willing to go. It will result in things that you never thought would ever happen to you. And we go through this cycle. But glory to God. There's this thing called repentance. Where we realize before it's too late that what I'm doing, rejecting God, embracing evil, it's not too late. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to run to God. I'm going to cry out to Him. I don't, want to, I don't want to make it last for 18 years. I want to do it right now before it's too late, before the consequences overwhelm me or those around me. You see, here's the good news. 
we do not need to wait for God to call up a deliverer. We are not living in the time of the judges. We don't need to sit here and weigh here in this mess that we've made sometimes in our lives. We don't have to wait for another 10 or 15 or 20 years before God calls someone in and delivers us from that. He gave us the greatest deliverer by giving us his son, Jesus Christ. Glory to God. Jesus is our deliverer. In fact, would you say that with me? Jesus is our deliverer. Say that again. Jesus is our deliverer. He's the one who sets us free. He's the one who comes in and says, the enemy must leave. He's the one who gets violent with the enemy. He's the one who brings order to the disorder. Jesus is our deliverer. We don't need to go through 20 or 50 or 80-year cycle of loss and devastation and heartache. We don't need to do that. We don't need to experience that. But what we are called to do, Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead to set us free from the power of sin. Jesus hung on the cross. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead to give us power over sin. You don't need to be subject to the powerful works of the enemy any longer. Jesus sets us free. We sang it this morning that we go from strength to strength. You see, Jesus is the cycle breaker. And instead of just repeating, going through that that horrible cycle, he sets us free. He breaks the cycle so that we go from strength to strength to strength so that you and your relationship with God are not going in circles but you are going from strength to strength to strength this is his plan too often too I if you're thinking he's talking about me I don't know your situation but too often When we find ourselves in a bad place, instead of becoming repentant and broken, and repentance means that we turn our back on the old life, and we run back to Him, and He restores us and heals us. Instead of that, instead of full repentance, we just get a little bit above misery. Have you noticed that? Some people, it's not, it's not that I, I, I want to see life change. I just don't want to be so miserable. And so they say, oh, God, help me. And, 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 and they get a little bit above misery, so they're just not an abject, horrible, I want to end it all misery. But they're, they're content with that. And too many people are just too content with being one step above misery. And I want you to know that we can have more than just one step above misery. We can have liberty and freedom and, 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 and a cycle breaker through Jesus Christ. That's the plan. That's the plan. To go from strength to strength. He's the cycle breaker. He's the cycle breaker. <laughs> I think Pastor Ben asked me uh, about uh, what the title of this sermon because he helps me with graphics. And, and uh, he said, Cycle Breaker. And I said, well, don't want to misunderstand. It's not motorcycle breaking. We wouldn't want to be all about that. No, he breaks these cycles. And, and, and someday, when this old world is no more, we are going to enjoy peace, not just for a season, but forever. Because one person defeated the enemy. His name is Jesus. My friends, I care for you. I love you deeply. Many of you who are listening, and yet I also warn you that we need to stop looking at the sin of the world around us and secretly yearning for it. That happens. We can look at what others are doing and we're going, boy, you know, something about that that I want. We need to stop secretly yearning for it. We need to stop looking at this world. And I know that we're in this world. As the old saying goes, we can be in this world and not of this world. 
We need to stop looking at this world and saying, how close can I get to it and still keep my salvation? That's where a lot of people live. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. This, this Ehud for eternity. Jesus, the deliverer for eternity. We need to stop worshiping what the world around us worships. Hear me. Stop worshiping what the world around us worships. What this world gives its money to. What this world gives its attention to. What this world places its hope upon. What this world finds its security in. It can be a person. It can be a thing. It can be a government. It can be any number of things. But we need to stop worshiping what the world around us worships, and we need to get our eyes on Jesus. He alone is worthy of our worship. This morning, brought this message. Again, I warn you, don't you take this as a template and apply it only to what's happening in our nation and in our society. Don't do that. It applies. It applies. And we're going to see this cycle in a... I want you to look, look at your own life, your own family. Say, Lord, how does this relate right to where I am? We're going to have a time of prayer. These next few moments are very important. Um, I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll go ahead and come. They're going to lead us in a song that says, uh, we sang earlier, You are the Lord, and He is. Um, we're going to make this place into a place of prayer. For those of you that are new here at AFA, we call this area the altar. It kind of harkens back to imagery in the Old Testament where people would come and they would fall before God. Um, there's nothing magical about this. We don't do magic. Uh, there's, there's, uh, but there is something about stepping forward and saying, Lord, would you meet me here at this place? And so in just a few moments, um, we're going to open up these altars. If you can, would you stand with me? And we're going to close in prayer, but we're going to invite you to come forward. I am very confident that the Holy Spirit in directing me to bring this is also been, has also been preparing you. And there are some of you, in fact, I think many of you today that need to meet the Lord at an altar of prayer and say, Lord, today the cycle ends. I've been going like this for so long. I don't want to go like this anymore. It's too painful. The consequences are too difficult. There are some of you that are looking at your own families and you're saying, I don't want this cycle being repeated in my children and my grandchildren. Today the cycle stops. Good news, we serve a deliverer. His name is Jesus. And I believe at an altar of prayer, he's going to meet us. So I'm going to close in prayer. And uh, you can come forward. There's not going to be a formal end. When you need to leave, go ahead and leave. But there are going to be a number of you, I believe, who are going to come down. And you may even just grab a family member's hand and you come together. A husband or a wife or a child or a parent. Maybe a good friend. You're just going to, you're just going to take him and you're going to come down and you're going to say, today the cycle stops. Today the cycle stops. We come to the deliverer. All right? So we're going to close in prayer. They're going to sing. You can sing along. I want you to come forward when you're done praying done singing. God bless you. Go in the presence of the Lord. Let's close this time in prayer before we come to these altars. Lord Jesus, thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for meeting us at these altars. Do a powerful work in us. Thank you that you are our deliverer. Set people free from the cycle, the destructive cycle of sin. Set them free at an altar of prayer. Commit them to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Let's come to these altars.